Welcome to Wholehearted Wednesday. Today I'll be interviewing Shannon Baldwin. She's the principal of a school that's experimenting with new forms of education. It's a really interesting story uh, around ideas about education and what's possible, and also the assumptions that we make around educating children and also what a child's mind is. I think it's a really interesting episode and you're going to love it. Enjoy. Welcome to Wholehearted Wednesday. My name is David, and today we're here with Shannon Baldwin. She's the principal of Acton Academy, Albuquerque. She's a trailblazer and a rebel. And she's really changing what education can mean and what does it look like to provide children with an alternative learning environment, really for the 21st century. She has an amazing story and she's doing something amazing in New Mexico. So I want to thank you, Shannon, for being here today and wondering if there's anything else that you'd like our audience to know about you. Yeah, I think that covers it. I'm honored to be talking with you as kind of a fellow trailblazer, I feel like, and a fellow rebel. Yeah, no, I would just want people to know that if something doesn't make sense to you or there's a better way to do it, we have the ability to look around us and kind of go out and blaze a new trail. Hmm. Did you always think you'd be doing what you're doing now? Like, how how'd this happen? No, this, this was completely out of left field, I guess. I mean, I was, I was a teacher. I taught high school and junior high in a traditional setting where... I occasionally got in trouble for doing things in a way that was not quite so traditional. (laughs) Um, And, you know, as part of the reason, eventually I moved out of education and did completely unrelated things. I managed salespeople and, you know, I was an executive assistant in fundraising and education was always, I think I've always kind of been an educator at heart. Like I love sparking ideas and seeing people sort of go and explore something that they had never thought about before or that they just realized existed. And so it really started because my husband and I were talking about where we wanted to send our two boys to school. Mm. And my husband had a terrible school experience just because he's really not designed for the way school is done. You know, you have an ADD kid who's, you know, he takes apart all of his toys to see how they work, but he doesn't sit at a desk and take tests very well. So he hated school from first grade all the way through college. And it was just a really trying and miserable experience for him. And he was terrified that that was going to be our our boy's experience, especially our oldest son, who's Mm -hmm. very much like him. And so we started just kind of talking and dreaming about what education should look like and what it should be. Like, man, there's nothing out there like that. You know, there really should be. And a few months later, a friend told me about this crazy school idea that his friend had started in Texas. And did I want to hear about it? And they told me about it. And I called Patrick and said, you know, that crazy school we dreamed up that we just (laughs) wished existed somewhere. He said, Jeff wants us to start a school like that here. And he was like, well, I think we should do that then. And so that really started... (laughs) You know, somebody's just coming and saying, you want to do something completely insane? And I said, yes, because I want my children to have that kind of a school experience. And so if we have to start that ourselves, then that's, that's what we're going to do. Hmm. What made it different when you guys thought and you guys you talk about the crazy school? And what, what makes Acton different? So, I, I mean, it's a, a very different approach. So when Acton approaches learning, it's really looking at One, it's looking at the whole child. So it's not trying to sort of fit some 
life skills and whatever into this set curriculum that we have. It's really approaching it and saying, who are these people and what do they need to really become successful, confident, independent people? And then building from there. So it's like, well, you need to be great at critical thinking. You need to be kind and compassionate. You need to be adaptable. You need to be creative. You need to be able to work well with people. Right? How do we design everything around that? What does that look like? Instead of saying, you need to memorize all of these facts from kindergarten through 12th grade. And that's the structure. And how do we sort of try to fit other things in somehow? It's like, what if, what if your structure is the whole person? And then you figure out how education naturally happens as they're doing that. Wow. How does that translate as far as like what happens in, in the classroom? So in the, in the classroom, you've got, so I'll just describe our elementary studio, which we're lucky enough to have <laughs> your son in for a little while. So the elementary studio will be ages like eight through 12. So you have this mixed age. They're learning from each other and they're teaching each other. The guide is not a teacher. So you take the adults off the stage and you make them a game maker and a mentor. Their job is to create challenges for the students to take on and figure out and discover, fail a little bit, figure it out, try again. They work at their own pace. So they look at their year and decide what they want to accomplish that year. And then they set goals every day to move themselves toward that end point. So it acknowledges, hey, you know, kids aren't standard. My son doesn't learn as much math in a year as, you know, his best friend. And she doesn't read as many books in a year as he does. <laughs> and, you know, they just have, they move at different paces. But it also, because the adult is off the stage, everything gets handed over to the students to figure out, you know, how do we, how do we want to structure our society here? What are our rules? Like their, their, their studio as a society? Yeah. So think of it as kind of a, a microcosm of a human society. You know, they, they come together and they spend a lot of intentional time talking about, you know, who are we and who do we want to be and how do we want to treat each other? And how do we want to interact? And what does that look like? And then moving that into, okay, what are the promises that we need to make to each other to realize this vision that we have? So we want to be a place that's open and accepting of all kinds of people. We want to be a place where everybody feels included. We want to be a place where you can, you know, speak up. We want to be a place where, you know, our people respect each other's ideas and learning. Okay, so what promises do we need to make to each other? To make that happen, so that we know we're heading in that direction. Just to be clear to the audience, when you say, what do we want, what do we want, these are 8 to 12-year-olds talking to yeah. each other. Yeah. So these are, these are the kids. <laughs> the adult is just asking questions. That's, that's their only job, is to ask questions. And so they come up with, at the beginning of every year, what they call their studio covenant. And so it'll be a list of, you know, Acton, they call, the, they call each other eagles. So they're the eagles. So eagles, you know, never exclude anyone from a group activity. Eagles don't distract each other when they're trying to focus. Eagles never use demeaning or, you know, unkind language. And so they have all these promises. And then over the course of the year, they develop systems for holding each other accountable to those promises. 
So instead of an adult coming in and kind of saying, this is how it is, and you're not allowed to do that because it's not nice, they've actually gone through a process of saying, yeah, I know why this isn't nice. Like we decided this and thought about it. And here's why it's important. And here's why we actually want to uphold that. And so they have the opportunity to, you know, realize what they may need to add to that or what maybe isn't that important and to create systems to make their society function. And sometimes they don't work very well. <laughs> it's like any, any human system, it's like, like wait, is this, come on, <laughs> like, is this in the, in the work? <laughs> yeah, I mean, they've, they've come up with things where they're like, we're gonna do it this way and this is how it's gonna play out. And you're like, okay, let's, let's try that out and see how it works. And on a couple of occasions, what we were like, this is gonna be a disaster, has actually worked really well. And in some cases, it really doesn't work very well. And it's frustrating to them and they feel like it's unfair, but they chose it. And so then they have the opportunity to come back together and say, this didn't work. Like, this is not working. So what do we need to do? What do, how do we need to change it? So it's really, it's teaching them on a daily basis that if something isn't working, if things are not fair, if it's inefficient, the ones who have the power to change that is them. They're not passive observers of, well, this isn't working and this is stupid. And they just become victims. It's their fault. I can't do anything about it. To being the kind of people who are like, well, that's not working. I wonder how we could do that better, which is, which is pretty powerful. So what is education to you? Um, I think it's, it's really the training of the mind in the same way that, you know, as a little kid, you learn how to walk. And then you spend the rest of your life figuring out what your body does. So when you're young, I mean, that's play, right? You're jumping, you're running, you're cartwheeling, you're like sliding down things. And I, I see education as that same process for, for your mind. You're being exposed to things, you're thinking about things, you're discovering things, you're figuring out how things go together. And you're taking on greater and greater and more strenuous challenges. Mm. And you're really discovering what your mind and your spirit can do in the same way we learn and challenge our bodies to see what they can do. And you have the same kind of thing. Like you, you struggle and you get a little sore and you get frustrated, you know, but <laughs> if, it, if it's done well, I think in the same way that, you know, we might climb a mountain and it hurts and it's it's strenuous but we're we're willing to take on that struggle because we've chosen it and we're going somewhere i think when education is done right that mental struggle is that same way it's it's challenging and it hurts a little bit but you've chosen it and you know where you're going and so that's that's just kind of how i see that whole what education is wow thank you increasingly strenuous play for the mind Wow, I love that. Increasingly strenuous play for the mind. Yeah, so cool. I like that. I'm curious just what your perspective is on education. I know that you're really what, what this is like, just kind of an experiment, and you're not out to change. Question I have, are you out to change all of education? I'm curious, like, what's the big, the big picture for you? Because most people don't have access to this kind of an education, or like the system doesn't, is not anywhere near playing with the ideas that you guys are, are rolling in, in a way. That's right, I mean... I lost that last part of the question, David. Can you 
what's the big picture for you in terms of education, the education system? Are you wanting to impact the way education happens for kids in the system? In, in some ways, yes. I think the, the way I look at what we're doing is the Acton Academies, we're not the only Acton Academy. We were, I think, the 35th Acton Academy <laughs> around the world. Um, so it's like an affiliate network. Everybody's independent, but they all talk to each other. We're innovating new ways that education can be done. But I don't think the way that we're doing it or the innovations we're coming up with are the only ones. You know, there's somebody out there that will innovate or has the potential to innovate a new way of doing education for, you know, kids with special needs or kids that come from, you know, have learning disabilities or, you know, they, which we don't have the capability of doing. The way that we do things, it's not for everyone. But the beauty of innovation is that, you know, if you try to make a one size fits all, it doesn't fit anybody which is kind of how I feel our traditional system is now. It's designed to be one size fits all, and so it doesn't fit anybody. But if individual innovators are looking at a specific group or a specific style, they can fill a specific need. And that expands opportunity for kids all over the place. Does that make sense? So I'm, you know, I don't have any grand hopes of like changing public education. But I think the more people are out there innovating new and better ways of doing education for kids, then that has to have some sort of effect on how education functions in the traditional way. I mean, even now you're seeing more because teachers want to do this kind of thing. This is what teachers want to do. They want to empower students. They want to be creative. They want to innovate. And they're not really being allowed to do that. And so the more opportunity there is out there and teachers start <laughs> moving to innovation, I think in some ways the traditional system has to start looking at it and saying, okay, how do we incorporate some of this? How do we bring some of that in? And so on that level, hopefully it does, even just by comparison, start to lead over. Wow, really interesting. I'm curious, do the kids at the school, do they still learn they still learn their, their math and their reading to the full marks. So you said it's self-paced, but how do they do as far as their own level of mastery? How does that work? You know, we have, we work on a badge system, kind of like the Boy Scouts. So you have, you have chunks of knowledge that you master. So if somebody's working on math, then they have these different chunks of skills in math that they master in order to move to the next chunk. And so they have a certain set of those mastery badges that they complete to move into the next studio. So you may have a child like my son who his friends of his age are mostly mastering those badges and moving into the next studio. And he'll take another year to master those badges and move in the next year because it's more about his pace of mastery than it is about his age. You know, in terms of, of reading, writing, and math, they do a lot of it. So if you're going to become a great reader, what do you do? You read a lot of books. <laughs> you, just, you read constantly. If you're going to become a great writer, you write all the time. And so something that's a little different in our approach is they're, they're writing and they're writing and they're writing and they're writing and they're writing. But up until they get toward older elementary, they're actually, they're putting a lot less emphasis on the technicalities of writing. They're just writing all the time. And so they're starting to develop a sense. They do a lot of peer review. They do, we use a lot of tools. And we always see this crazy kind of jump from the elementary studio to the mid-school studio, 
we're in the elementary studio, you're like, okay, you know, should they learn to use a period? Like, what are we doing? <laughs> you know? And then two months into the mid-school studio, they're using Grammarly and they're really super focused on all the mechanics and they want to make them perfect. And there's this kind of crazy transition where it's like suddenly this becomes important and now they figure out how to make it because it's all there. It's all been bubbling. It's all been practiced. It's all, and now it becomes important and they mask. But when you focus on some of that too soon, it's like you have to get everything right. And when you have to get everything right, the joy and the fun of learning something and practicing something and doing something really kind of gets sacrificed to perfect capitalization as an eight-year-old. Yeah. Wow. Thank you. So kind of a little bit of a different approach, but you get to a much better destination. (laughs) Yeah. How has doing this changed you like as a person? Oh gosh. Uh, It's given me a lot more faith in what kids are capable of. Just realizing that, you know, we tend to kind of lock them down because we don't trust them to make some choices and releasing them to take more control and take more initiative within some boundaries and with some good tools. What you see them start to take on is, is magical. And so realizing that where it's like, oh, you know, I was kind of on a track sometimes to almost handicap my own child because I wasn't, I wasn't willing to trust them to do things and fail and figure it out because that was harder for me. Wow. What are some of the things that you learned to trust and certain decisions that you'll, certain things that you allowed your children to decide that maybe you wouldn't have in the past? How to really resolve a conflict with a friend. So I had, you know, one of mine who was really having a struggle with a friend. And, you know, my, my mom tendency was to, Hey, well, let's do this. And, you know, I'm going to talk to so-and-so and we're in, you know, that was just like, let's, let's take control of the situation. Let's figure it out for you and let's make it, you know, create a pathway. And you might, this is last year. So it's the second year. And I started kind of moving and he was like, mom, I'm not telling you this so that you can take over. I'm telling you this because I'm just trying to process it in my mind. And I was like, oh, okay. Do you, what do you want me to do? He's like, I don't want you to do anything. He's like, I just need to, you know, I can have a peace table with him. Like so-and-so has already said that she'll sit down and help us talk to each other. I just need to figure out what I'm going to say. And that, and that's what they did. I mean, they had a couple of unsuccessful <laughs> conversations and then they had a more successful conversation and then they had a really successful conversation and now they're fine. But it was realizing he had been equipped and we had given them some tools and some ways of approaching this and he didn't need me. Wow. But before when I had, you know, he had no tools, he had no practice, he had nothing. I had to handle that for him. He didn't have the resources. But once we had given him the resources, I was kind of out of it, you know? Wow. <laughs> allowing some of that, turning, dialing down your helicopter parent and allowing them to struggle with something and figure it out builds their own confidence in what they're, in what they're capable of handling. You know, me, me jumping in and just handling it apparently was saying to him, you know, I don't, I don't trust you to do this. We're not capable of doing this. We need someone else, which wasn't what I was trying to say, but was definitely. (laughs) So, and it's little things like that, 
all across the board where it's like, oh, well, if you resource them and train them and give them the dignity of failing a couple of times, they become confident that they can come up against something they don't know how to handle and figure it out. Mm, Got it. I really like, it's interesting, the dignity of failing, you mentioned that. And also like when they have the tools and they have the resources, then you kind of like give them the space to have that experience. Yeah, you had asked me once, uh, I thought it was such a great question, what the one thing kids need most from school. Mm -hmm. And that was what I landed on was they need dignity and respect. And, you know, knowing that they can fail and that that's okay and that they can get back up and figure it out. And that someone will be there to ask them questions and research, but will trust them to deal with the consequences of their own choices. And there's an innate dignity in that, that I think we strip from kids without realizing when we protect them from making hard choices or we protect them from taking risks or we insulate them from the consequences of the actions that they've taken, we're, we're diminishing them and it's disrespectful. And I think on some level, they know it. And when you give them that dignity and respect, they can thrive in any area because they know that their choices matter. Wow. Thank you. That was my revelation. from. <laughs> and one thing that a child needs to receive from a school is dignity and respect. Yeah. Wow. And that's been- allowing them to fail. Yeah. What have been some of the biggest challenges you've run into? <laughs> One is, is recognizing, you know, I said we're, we're not for everyone. Um, and any educator wants to be for everyone. Mm. And so some of the challenges, especially early on, was recognizing that we don't serve everyone well. And so if I wasn't clear and careful to make sure that the people that were coming in would be well served by what we were doing, that they would be unhappy. And that they really would, you know, they would be unhappy and that they would make other people very unhappy. So that, that was an early struggle. And then, you know, the struggle of just recognizing that innovation is kind of messy. And so, you know, you struggle to release these students to try something that you know is going to fail and to give them the respect of stepping back and letting them try it because they're really invested and they really thought it through and they really think this is going to be great. That was a struggle. And we stepped in a couple of times in the beginning and shouldn't have and really watched them lose for a while, just kind of lose that confidence and lose that drive. But when we stepped back and let them fail and then let them figure out another way, it built their confidence. And so we struggled to kind of keep ourselves out of it in some ways. Mm, interesting. Too, I guess, because teachers like to be, we like to be on the stage too. And we don't do that at Acton. So we, we have to struggle with that desire to be the expert and the one who's going to come up with a solution and release that to them. Mm, also here you kind of had to let go. Yeah. If that's something you had to let go of, what's something that you really had to learn to lean on or to pick up often and more than you would normally have otherwise? That's a good question. One, I think, was just this really intentional starting of every day with fresh eyes. Letting go of, you know, our analytical tendency to just kind of be like, okay, this student is doing this and they're doing this and this is happening and this is happening. And I'm going to draw all these conclusions from that. And when I come in tomorrow, that's what I'm going to see. And so I've had to really lean into, okay, 
there's always another story. And I, I have to lean into that kind of still place in my mind where I'm just holding all of this information without deciding things on it about these people and allow them to surprise me and to surprise themselves. And so many times they do. And I, you know, I realize I can, as an analytical person who's going to draw all of these lines, I can really disrupt that journey by pushing in the wrong direction instead of just observing. Mm, wow. What has been one of your most moving experiences that you've seen happen for yourself? It can be at school or elsewhere, but like, what's been some of the most moving experiences you've seen? Since we're talking about school, it's going <laughs> to have to be at school. We have a student who came in and was very, very insecure, very timid, very anxious, high, high anxiety, would talk down about themselves all the time. Just any, any mistake, anything was, oh, I'm so stupid. I'm an idiot. I can't believe it. You know, and there was just this, this crippling self-depreciation and constant kind of anxiety. So any, mm. anything where they were putting their work out there or they were getting up to speak, couldn't do it. I mean, almost physically couldn't do it. And we had, this was early last year, so their second year. And they got really anxious about one of the projects that they were doing where they were supposed to get up and present something. And they didn't complete it because they were afraid of, of presenting. And so they failed to complete this project in this class. And they came to me and they were just frustrated with themselves and weren't going to have anything to present. And the studio had decided that everybody needed to get up and present something. And they hadn't prepared for that. And so we talked about it and they decided, I encouraged them to share their failure story. That, you know, you're not, you're not the only one out there who has let themselves down or who has failed at something. And your studio knows that you failed to complete it. Nobody is angry with you. No one has rejected. And sharing something about that for other people out there who have felt the way you have felt might be really powerful. And I didn't think that that was going to fly <laughs> at all. But they went home, they wrote a script and got up and delivered this beautiful story that just said, you know, I'm standing here because I failed to do this because I was afraid. And I was afraid that if I didn't do everything perfectly, that people wouldn't like me anymore and that I would be rejected. And that didn't happen. And just went through this whole thing and was in tears half of the time. And we were all in tears half of the time. And it broke something mm -hmm. in that. And now this student is one of the most confident <laughs> students that we have. Always very eager to, to mentor the younger ones. Very kind, very generous, very encouraging of making sure that they speak well of themselves and um and has taken on leadership roles in the studio which was never in a million years something that even would have been a possibility at first and so you know this is the the beautiful thing is that in a year and a half you know you saw this tightly closed bud just completely blossom and all of that potential and that beauty that was there suddenly become visible in reality and yeah, that one in itself, <laughs> it's, it's not isolated, but that, that one in itself is, it makes all of that worthwhile. It's seeing someone really 
find their voice. Wow, thank you. What has been one of your most humbling experiences? Oh, goodness. There's been so many. <laughs> you can do something outside the box unless you're willing to be, to be humbled quite a bit. I had a family member that I hired and was warned, you know, that that's not a good idea and I shouldn't do it. And I was sure that I was an exception and that I was right, <laughs> that it would be fine. It was not fine. And my wise counselors should have been listened to. And it was very humbling to see just how my, my unwillingness to listen to wise counsel and to really listen to my own inner voice in some ways, to mm. talk myself out of my own inner voice, not only affect the person that I hired, the family member that I hired, but also really affected some of our students that first year, really affected my staff and affected some relationships for a while. You know, just to say, I made a choice and it was a poor choice. And I wasn't the only person that suffered for that choice. Mm. You know, that was very humbling there at the beginning. Wow. Thank you. I wanted to ask you, I just want to thank you for like being so generous too with yourself and with your story. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not very good at um i come from a baptist background and we used to see that we all have church faith you know ah, it's beautiful <laughs> i've never been good at that <laughs> it's like it might be blessed and beautiful but it's it's messy and i've screwed some things up I think that, that's what connects us as humans is you know we're all a little messy and we can forgive each other and learn from each other and <laughs> you know walk this walk this sort of muddy path sometimes together mm, yeah it kind of leads me into the next question i'm wondering if you had to boil things down so a couple of lessons that you've learned say along the way and not just with the work that you're doing maybe like in life what would you say are some of the the biggest lessons that you could pass any on if you can only pass on a handful what would some of them be what are my beautiful words before a sunset mean uh, yeah, if you want to call it that, yeah. <laughs> also coming from a relatively dogmatic religious background, I think something that really has become almost a mantra for me is that there's always another story. Mm. And that we have to be very careful about where we, where we plant our flag or what we decide we know, absolutely. Because the minute we know the tendency is for thinking to stop and defend and for defending to begin. And so my planting a flag here, and if I'm planting a flag here, do I know why I'm planting it? Or should I maybe just sit on this hill and kind of watch what's going on before, <laughs> you know, before I decide to do that? That's really my big one. Mm. And then another one kind of stems from something I had a professor say that I disagreed with when I was 20. <laughs> Because I would, you know, I was, I was the debater who would just go for blood. You know, <laughs> I, could, I knew I could tear someone's argument apart and I would just do it. And he said, my maiden name is Miss Jackson. I want you to consider that people might be more important than truth. And my 20-year-old self was like, no, they're not. <laughs> truth is always more important than everything. <laughs> um, but I've, I've kind of come to see the wisdom of that in some ways that who we are and how we respond to people and our ability to listen is more important than what you know. 
that's more important than mm. that. Not that they don't matter, but when we start sacrificing people and relationships and kindness to physicians, then we may have lost our way a little bit. And as someone who had a tendency to do that as a young person, as I've gotten older, <laughs> a little more like, hmm, yeah, maybe not so quick with the torches and pitchforks. And <laughs> <laughs> so those are my hard learned, <laughs> my hard learned lessons. Wow. So there's always another story. Yeah. And people are more important than truth. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Thank you. Yeah, Shannon, I want to acknowledge you. I think something that shows up for me is your softening. I think I want to acknowledge you for your softening over time. And also, at the same time, your increased grit and resilience. It's like an interesting combination. I think Brene Brown would say a strong back and a soft front. I like that. I hope that's, I hope that's true. Yeah, I, want to, yeah, I appreciate <laughs> that. And it's like a, there's a bit of a, a brazenness to you, a bit of a daring, and also the willingness to take action on something that's unknown or uncertain, like to be on a new wave of something different to see what can happen and then to turn some heads while doing it. You get to, you get to see all of the beautiful, amazing things that happen and you get to be responsible for some mistakes. <laughs> yeah. Thank you. Final question for you. What does it mean to be wholehearted? You know, it's, it's kind of like the best way I can describe it for me and I think I mentioned this a little bit earlier. For me, it's, it's really learning to find, to find that still place in myself to really concentrate on kind of holding everything with an open hand so that I can listen and I can hear and I can experience and I can participate in things without sort of clamping down on what it is I'm, I'm hoping to get out of or what it is I'm trying to get across or what I would like to avoid, <laughs> you know, it's just kind of this opening up. And that really, ironically, is kind of a struggle for me, because for as, as open as I can be, real vulnerability can be a, a big struggle. And so in, in those interactions, just finding that still place and finding that openness to just be is really what it comes down to for me right now. Wow. Thank you. And uh, I want to thank you for your time and thanks for being on the show today with us. Oh, thank you. Great questions. Thank you for letting me ramble with you for <laughs> Thank you. Thank you for listening to today's episode. If you'd like to find more, check us out on iTunes and Spotify. And you can also find out more about Wholehearted at beingwholehearted.com. Thank you so much and have a wholehearted week.